0: Merry Christmas. I uh, was putting on clothes I was going to wear today, and uh, you know, I only have about, I don't know, six or seven different combos. Just keep rotating through them, right? So I put on this one, worn this one before, and I thought, well, it's not very Christmassy. So I did find those some red socks. So to add to our standard pastoral blue outfits that you often see Claude and I wear, and we, we tend to go with blue quite a bit. I'm not sure why that is. But since it's Christmas, I wanted to tell you, too, my, uh, my favorite Christmas story, which hopefully at some point in the talk I'll be able to connect in at least slightly. <laughs> but it's a story about my dad, who's, uh, he, he passed away in 2005. In the last um, 10, 15 years of his life, he was a diabetic. So I'm a diabetic, too. I became a diabetic at 40, so I blame him because I was in pretty good shape, I thought. So I don't know where else to point. But my dad was diabetic for 15 years and not very disciplined in how he ate. Not bad, but not very good. My my mom tried to be disciplined for him. So what that meant is my dad was almost constantly sneaking food, like a kid. It'd be hilarious, right? Like, we'd be watching, and we thought, wow, he, he sneaks snacks just like we do. You know, he's the same. But this one Christmas party, uh, my parents went to this couple's Christmas party that was put on by the church. They went every year. And there were snacks out there. So there's these plates of cookies as they walk into the house. My mom's engaged talking with people and friends. My dad sees a plate of cookies. He sees actually many cookies. He takes one, he puts it into his mouth, gives a big bite down, but he encounters a problem. At about the same time, my mom turns and sees my dad with this gingerbread cookie in his mouth. problem was... There weren't just cookies there, there were ornaments as well. So this was a gingerbread ornament he had just put in his mouth. He bit down on it. My mom saw him and just said, George, and took (laughs) took it out of his mouth. This might be my favorite part. Put it back down on the platter. So somebody got a Christmas ornament with a couple teeth marks in it. Fantastic. So we'll see as we read through Zechariah 9 if we can somehow get that in there. But Zechariah 9, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Um, and then we're also going to, before we end here, because we're doing the last six chapters of Zechariah. So we're going to try to wrap up Zechariah. What I'm going to do is read uh, First nine verses of chapter nine, and then the last two verses of the book. You know, if you're ever trying to figure out what's in a book, it's never bad. Probably your best bet. Read the first paragraph and the last paragraph. These guys are good writers, right? They're going to land where they are planning to land. So it'll be important to look at those two. But here, we'll go into these nine verses, and I bet that you recognize the ninth one. So Zechariah 9. The oracle of the word of the Lord, is against the land of Hadrak, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind, and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it. Ter and Sidon, though they are very wise, Ter has built herself a rampart, and heaped up silver like dust, and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions, and strike down her power on the sea. So, Ter and Sidon, he's talking about her, right? He's keeping his eyes on Israel, but this isn't Israel, right? These are the Phoenicians. So, Tyr has built herself a rampart, and they've become wealthy. But behold, the Lord will strip her, "...of her possessions, and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire." Like, judgment of Israel's enemies. That's not the first time we heard that in Zechariah. "...Ashkelon shall see it, and be afraid. Gaza, too, and shall writhe in anguish." So these are typically the Philistines we're talking about now. "...Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded." The king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited, a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth, and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Did you feel that turn there? That just went from judgment of Israel's enemies into an embracing, a welcoming in. I mean, verse 7 says, I will take away, after it just said, I'm cutting off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It's like, I'm cleansing it. It shall be a remnant. Well, we saw a remnant. That came up in chapter 8 three times. The remnant, the remnant is typically, whenever we hear remnant, the first time we hear about a remnant in Israel, that I know of, it's in Elijah. right? When Elijah's looking at all of the sons of Abraham, all of Israel, and the Israelites, and saying, there's no one left but me. And the Lord tells Elijah, no, no, that's not the case. There's 7,000 left over who haven't bowed to Baal. There's a remnant of the faithful, even though everyone looks unfaithful to you. So remnant is talking about those who were faithful. So we're reading here in Zechariah 9 that we're cutting off your enemies. We're going to judge them. But then there's this verse popping up here where it's saying, but wait. There's going to be faithful from among your current enemies. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro and no oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is He. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, of a donkey. You know, when I think of Christmas, at least the the Christmas story, as we read it in the Bible, you know, not always as we see it on TV, and certainly not how it's celebrated in our, our culture. Not that everything's bad about how we celebrate it. I'm glad we celebrate it. But in the Bible, it, it's, it's such a humble beginning. right? That's what, when I read... Scripture about Christmas, what always strikes me is the humility involved, the work that's involved by Joseph and Mary to get to Bethlehem, like all the thoughts that must be going through Joseph and Mary's heads as they think about Mary's pregnant and Joseph's thinking like it's not from me. And. But I'm convinced the Lord's in this. And, And Mary's still taking notes, you know, like, what's going on? What is this child going to be exactly? I'm not sure I completely understand, but they're poor. And they're getting back to Bethlehem. And now they're in a manger, right, before the child's born. What a humble start. You know, I think so often when we're asked as Christians, like, Uh, And it's a good question to ask. Jesus tells us, you know, take up your cross daily and follow me. This idea that we will daily lay down our lives, daily look for, Lord, what cross do you have for me to carry? But sometimes, I'm sure this isn't how Jesus meant it, you can almost say you're taking up this cross and there's almost like a bit of a hero mentality. You know, the, the cross sometimes, as I envision it, Jesus is carrying it, but the crowds are gathered around him. Everybody's watching. It almost seems like you got this moment of when you're really going to be Christian, like take up your cross. I don't think Jesus meant to give it kind of that hero feel that sometimes it has in my head. But you know what never has a hero feel to me that, that's even clearer sometimes? About the life that Jesus is calling me to live. I think of the manger. That this humble obedience that Joseph and Mary, they're there alone. There's no drummer boy on the scene yet. I'm just kidding. That that doesn't happen. But there's no one there. It's just this humble obedience with really nothing. That this world is giving them nothing. It's just this humble, faithful, obedience. When I pray, I always try to pray, oh Lord, make me courageous that when there's a time when you're calling me in faith to to carry my cross, I, I pray that I'll be faithful. Help me, Lord, moment by moment. And Lord, help me to embrace the mangers that you have for me. That I won't demand that everybody see me as I be obedient. That it will be enough that you see. Help me, Lord, just to be humble. And we see in Zechariah 9 that a humble Christmas, this humble Christmas that starts in the manger, it leads to a humble king. That Zechariah 9 is picks up, by the way, in, in Matthew, Matthew 21, verse 5, if we could throw that verse up there, This is Matthew, as Jesus is coming in on the donkey into Jerusalem, right? He's coming in, and he's going to die shortly. But as he moves in, and the crowds are all around him, that Matthew says, this is fulfilling the prophecy. And he quotes Zechariah 9, verse 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble." And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. That a humble Christmas leads to a humble king on a donkey. That we're called to be humble and to follow this humble king. But I think we read something else in Zechariah 9 we read that this humble king unites all believers. That this actually wasn't just something that we pick up in the New Testament. That there's this union between all believers. That it's hinted at, or even displayed in the Old Testament, throughout, throughout the Old Testament. We can pick up on this. Even as Israel, right from the beginning... I like to look at Joshua. I mean, really, that's right when Israel first goes in and possesses the land. And, And really, who's the star of the first six chapters of Joshua? Maybe we could say Joshua. He's a pretty big star. But it's Rahab... Right? The Canaanite prostitute. That this union, it's interesting too, that when she's rescued from Jericho, where all of Jericho is destroyed, except Rahab and her family, it says she came and lived. She she lived among the Israelites. She was actually united into their community. That this was a picture of what Jesus Christ was going to do for all of us. And we get it in, in Zechariah 9... Verse 7, that this is the idea that I will take away its blood, right? The blood of Philistia from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. That they'll be faithful among your former enemies. That they'll then be united. That this is what the humble king will do. He unites all believers so that there are no, there's no divisions that the world keeps up in place. Because the world has all sorts of divisions, right? We divide between countries and races. We divide between men and women. We divide between rich and poor. I mean, the kingdoms of this world, they divide constantly... But Jesus comes together and unites everybody in faith. There's only one division left in the New Testament. There's just one. There's a division between those who believe and those who don't. And that's it. That Jesus, the humble King, unites all believers. I'm convinced that Paul was thinking of Zechariah when he was writing his letter to the Roman church. That when he's writing Romans, right, what we know as Romans, which was a letter to the believers in Rome, there was a great division in place. There was a division between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And Paul came along and said, really, You were both lost. Both of you in your fear and lack of faith were lost. That Christ came and saved the Jew and the Gentile. And that you are now united in Christ. And so when he gets to Romans chapter 11, we put it up last week. Here's Romans chapter 11 verses 5 and verse 17. So this is all in the same argument where he's talking to this divided church. He says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. In verse 4, he talks about even in the days of Elijah, there was a remnant. He says, now there still is. It's not as if all of the Israelites have run off in their disbelief. Paul says, look, I'm an Israelite. I'm literally in human ancestry. I'm a son of Abraham. I'm one of the remnant. I believe. Because there was confusion in those days. Why? Because so many of the Israelites rejected Jesus. So Paul always had to defend the fact that, hey, he is the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah that you've been waiting for. And people would say, well, how do you explain that essentially the whole nation has rejected Christ? The one you say is the Messiah. And then Paul would say, wait. It was always just a remnant in Israel. There was always a believing remnant. And that's who was saved. Elijah didn't look at all of Israel and say they were saved. He was really confused. Like Ahab the king? That was not a very good picture of an Israelite. He didn't think of him as saved. Elijah was thinking, I'm the only one. The Lord was saying, you're not the only one. You're one of a remnant that believes. And Paul said, look, it's still the same way. There's a remnant that believes. All those great disciples and early believers, all Jewish, all Israelites, the remnant. But then he says to Rome, look, it's not just Israelite believers. And to the Gentile believers, don't reject the Israelite believers. Because here's what's actually going on. Romans eleven seventeen, 17. He says, you know, in their, in their lack of faith, the Israelites, they've been broken off from what? The olive tree. Okay, so Paul's in Romans chapter 11 talking about remnant, which is mentioned three times in chapter 8, once in chapter 9, and an olive tree. Do we remember the fourth vision? I mean, it's the olive tree. When I read remnant and olive tree, I think Zechariah. I can assure you, the Apostle Paul knew the book of Zechariah a lot better than me. (laughs) He's saying remnant and olive tree because he's saying, look, this is what the coming king, we always knew he would do. It's always been there. He's going to unite all believers. But if some of the branches... That is the original. The Israelites were broken off due to a lack of faith in Christ. Like like Judas, right? Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, he's broken off. He, He lost the promises of Abraham. And you, although a wild olive shoot, now talking to the Gentiles, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. It's Paul saying to the Roman church, and to us today, none of the divisions that the world sets up can divide us. Not socio-economical, not international, not racial, not gender, not anything. That the humble king unites all believers. But before we're done with Zechariah, I want to read you the last two verses. I want to make sure we land where Zechariah lands. Because the humble king, his work continues to get described. And on that day, and by the way, if you ever hear on that day, anywhere, Old Testament or New Testament, think Resurrection Day. Coming kingdom of God. And on that day. I mean, they are waiting for that day. Paul was focused on that day. Like, we should, in every day we live in this life, be thinking of that day that's coming. Because that's the inheritance. That's the kingdom come. Heaven and earth coming together on that day. So, and on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. They were sanctified, holy. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all whose sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. The idea was that everything in the temple was holy. Not everything in all of Jerusalem was holy. There were bowls throughout Jerusalem that couldn't be used in the temple. They hadn't been sanctified for that. But what we read at the end of Zechariah chapter 14, the end of Zechariah period, is that the humble king makes everything in his kingdom holy. That on that day, when heaven and earth come together, nothing exists except that which has been sanctified by the humble king, by Christ. That everything will be made right that all evil is judged and wiped out, no more death or mourning or crying or pain, that this same day is described in Revelation. We could put those two up together. Uh, So we just read Zechariah 14.20, And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bulls before the altar, John in Revelation says it like this, but nothing unclean will enter it. That is the kingdom of God. Heaven on earth. Resurrection day. Christ's return. The heavenly Jerusalem coming down. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That the humble king unites all believers. And the humble king makes everything in his kingdom holy. So what's the application for us? I think to begin with, it's repentance. Right, that we look at our lives and we look to see: Are we hanging on to anything false? Is there anything untrue that we're hanging on to? Because here's the deal, right? Like Jesus is the truth; he sets us free from everything that's false. But we're still, even as believers, and certainly as those who haven't yet followed him, able to grab on to lies, and they're destructive. Look, I grew up uh, under my parents, and, and they loved me. But they made mistakes too. And those mistakes, they caused me a lot of pain. And it wasn't just them, it was others, right? Like this is a story we can all relate to. that We grow up, and whether we look back and think our life was pretty good or pretty bad, what we can find if we give it any sort of thought was, Wow, there was pain mixed in there, too. And it it wasn't just pain from situations, uh, bad luck. It it was pain that came on us from from people. And we have a response to pain. It's often fear. It's either fear or faith. For me, it was a lot of fear. I think we all start with fear. I I think that's pretty much everybody's initial response or eventual response. And in fear, what came right behind fear always for me was was anger. So there's this pain that got put on me, you know. When we're little kids, it's probably the only time we can really be a pure victim. (laughs) You get this pain, and in response you get this anger, and then you hang on to that anger. And what I found is in my anger, I could strike out and cause my own pain. So then I had anger and guilt. And when you can't shake the guilt and you're trying to figure out this complicated world and you're blaming what happened to you for what you did and trying to pawn things off and it just gets worse and worse, getting angrier and angrier and guiltier and guiltier. Jesus came into my life and he removed the guilt. That's what he did. That he who had no sin became sin for us. (laughs) Took it to the cross. Paid the price. rose from the dead. So I could really know that this isn't just a fairy tale. He is who He said He is and He took away my guilt. And then He made me take responsibility for my actions and He still does, right? And He calls us to turn from everything false. That I can no longer justify my anger even when I'm hurt and lash out in my anger, or withdraw in my anger, and cause pain. It's not His way. That what He calls us to do is to not only repent, but to be humble. That this humble king who rode in on a donkey, humbly, that's highlighted in Matthew where I showed you, Humble is a key word in Matthew. That in Matthew, that same word that's translated humble in Matthew 5, verse 5, it's translated meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. That in this repentance, we've had our sin removed, you know, like we've called out. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Those first three attitudes. Be poor in spirit. Mourn and be meek. That if we'll be poor in spirit, we will be part of the kingdom of heaven. That we will, as we look to Him, mourn our own sin and even the pain that we've experienced. And He will move us forward in meekness. That this humble King, He calls us, He speaks to us. To move forward meekly. That if we'll listen to his voice, especially when the anger comes on us. Because we still feel pain and anger, right? The idea is you're going to feel it. We're going to feel it. But we no longer let it drive us. He drives us. I was talking with a guy as we walked around this block that I now live on over by 2nd Street and Merrimack Trail, and he came walking out of a motel. And as he came walking up to me, real quick, he, it's a motel where like, you don't stay there to visit, you stay there to live. And so it's really poor people coming out of there. And lots of times, if not all the time, their lives are chaotic. Like, you hear their stories, it doesn't take long, it's chaos. So when he came out quickly to approach me, First thing that came through my head is, he's probably going to ask for money. Like, I haven't had anyone come out of there, and I walk there every day. It quickly approached me. But he did. He just quickly approached me. And, you know, I felt guilty after a while. Why did I assume he was going to ask for money? He didn't. He was actually just walking down the street to the next motel where people were living because his ex-girlfriend's kids were getting off the bus and they were going to live in that motel. But he knew those kids, so he was just making sure they got off the bus and into the motel. And as I was walking with him, we just started talking. First thing he asked is, What are you doing here? Why are you in this side of town? And I couldn't even figure out what he said, because there's white and black people over there. He happened to be black, but there's other white people, so I thought, What stood out so bad? You know, like I'm wearing my hoodie, there's a lot of hoodies around there. <laughs> I got my old jacket on, you know, because it's a little warmer. Like, what stood out? I was guessing later it was how I talk. Because we still talk. We're friends now. So we're texting back and forth. And his name is G, and my name is Doug. I mean, Doug screams like 50-something-year-old white guy. It does, right? Everybody's named after Douglas MacArthur, right? So we're talking, and, and, you know, like, when we're texting back and forth... I use words like, have a good day, oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> he doesn't use any of those words when he's texting me. Like, I'm cuz. And it's just a totally, so I wonder if that's how we knew. But well, I'll tell you what we were connected on, pain and anger. We, we only had to talk, walk like 200 yards for I heard his story of pain. And as we stood in front of that hotel and talked more, he told me more about his anger and then the pain he has caused. So now we got that in common too. Pain, anger, and guilt. So I told him, I told him Jesus took away, he took away my guilt. And now when anger comes on me, he moves with me. I'm so glad I didn't cry in front of G. (laughs) Maybe it would have been good. But it went perfect anyhow. Because I just asked him, G, would you like Jesus to remove your guilt and walk with you now so that when that anger comes on you, you don't have to respond the same way? And he said yes. And we prayed right there in front of that hotel. G and I are united in Christ. That the humble King does this. That He sets us all apart. That this humble King, the humble Christmas leads to a humble King on a donkey. And this humble King, He unites all believers. And this humble King makes everything in His kingdom holy. Amen. And have a wonderful Christmas.